A story they're writing today A wall that they're climbing You can carry the past on your shoulders You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville Where the pastor is Pastor Ricky Rueda Grab your Bibles and read along Now here's Pastor Ricky So, Lord, we come before you this morning thankful for the opportunity. Lord, I know as our brother prayed earlier that, Lord, we get to gather, Lord, in your church, Father, with at least some semblance of peace that we could come together and worship aloud with hands raised high, that we would be able to get into your word. And, Father, um, even like the Bereans, if you would allow it, come to know it well so that, Lord, we could be defenders of our faith and proclaimers of the gospel when we go out of these doors. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would lend us the Holy Spirit to give us understanding, Father, that we would be convicted to be made more like you today. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So, we are in the book of Matthew. And specifically today we're going to pick up in chapter 12, verse 22. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we've been going verse by verse Um, through the book of Matthew for some time now, and then next week we'll go ahead and pick up in verse 33. But as we've been going through the book, something important to remember is of all the Gospels, Matthew is specifically written to reveal to the reader and to reveal specifically to the Jewish person that Jesus is in fact the awaited Messiah that he is the one that they've been waiting for all these years, that this is the man that there have been prophecies about all these years, that this is a God, the Savior that they've been waiting for so that they could see who he truly was. And as we've been going through this, we've been seeing Jesus' ministry continue to unfold, but specifically in these chapters, 11 and 12, while Jesus is still performing miracles and while he's still gaining fame in the area of his ministry, He is beginning to see, and he's God, so he's not surprised by this. He knew how this would go. But we are beginning to see increasing opposition and hostility to the ministry of Jesus. And so last week, we looked at um, Jesus speaking for the second time to the issue of the Sabbath, and we saw that the Pharisees were trying to manipulate a a poor soul to try to condemn the ministry of Jesus, but he would, Jesus would, remind us of God's love for man, even in the institution of the commandments, and that we're not called to serve out of obligation, but we would do so out of an abundant love for the Lord as he abundantly loves us. And then today, we're going to talk about the topic of the unforgivable sin. There is, in fact, one, and we're going to go ahead and see what that is today. And so, if you're in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, would you say amen? Amen. It says, then a demon-oppressed man, your translation might say possessed, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid 
to waste. And no city or house divided, it, divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he, is first, unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so today we're going to see Jesus draw, as we just read, a very clear line in the sand as to what it is to be saved. And so uh, could you guys go back one slide? I believe I missed one, the outline for today. Um, nope, that's too far. Nope, too far again. And current, nope, not that one. Keep going. A little bit more. Last week, one more. Current week. There we go. Today we're going to see Jesus perform an exceptionally miraculous healing. We're going to see an irrational reaction by the Pharisees. And I'd say that that particular point, just so you know, in the Gospels, something that is always very easy to walk away with, an easy application, is we want to look at people's responses to the ministry of Jesus. And today we're going to see a fairly hostile one by the Pharisees. And we're going to see Jesus provide a rational and graceful response. And then closing with his response, he will give us the reason for it and how long that reason will be applied. And so the first one we'll look at, verses 22 and 23, the exceptionally miraculous healing. Now, I'm actually just going to read that one more time just to make sure we're all on the same page. The demon-possessed man, or then a demon-oppressed man was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the son, so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So <clears throat> this particular healing caught attention for a reason. Now, as we're reading this, we've seen Jesus has healed many people. We've seen that Jesus will raise the dead. We've seen the disciples are even performing miracles. And we know, due to context, that there are others in the area who would be able to perform miracles. But this particular one caught people's attention, and it caught the Pharisees' attention for a very specific reason. And so we can see through all of history, and even currently today, that there would be those who would try to practice what we would call exorcism on those who would be oppressed or possessed, depending on the terminology you're using. But in this particular case, it was believed to be impossible. There are many cultures who would attempt to try to accomplish this and, and set a soul free. There were traditions and rituals that would be attached to the process of exorcism, and they would have been approved by the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, even in Israel. 
But one of the main ones that would have been necessary according to what they believed at the time was that the name of the demon possessing or oppressing the, the person would have, been, would have had to have been made clear. And so the reason that this particular miracle stands out is that this man is both blind and mute is that there was no way for the exerciser to communicate to the person who was being possessed. And because they couldn't identify who was possessing the individual, they couldn't exercise him. But Jesus comes in and does something that completely flips their world upside down. This was believed to be completely impossible, but Jesus steps in and not only does it, but he makes it look very easy. This would have been a clearer than normal display of Christ's authority over our spiritual reality. And because it was believed to be impossible, even by those most practiced and most senior in the spiritual community, it shouldn't be unexpected that this would have invoked some kind of response from people. Now, there's two responses that we see here in this text, is that the people who would look on and see what's happening, they would begin to ask the question, can this be the son of David? Or even we could phrase, could this be the Messiah? This man just did something that we didn't think could be done. We didn't think anybody was able to do this. And he came in and just speaks, and this person's been made well. Is this the Messiah we have been waiting for? That was the people's response. Jesus' faithful and gracious ministry was beginning to allow the people to see who he truly was amongst them. But then in verse 24, as we read that, it says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Baal's above the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. Verse 24 shows us that there are some who would have an irrational response to the miraculous ministry of Jesus. Now, <clears throat> first question is, is this an irrational response? Why would I say that? Testing and watching is necessary. Brothers and sisters, I think there's something very important that we need to remember and that this should not be held against the Pharisees to a certain extent or anybody who's considered a leader within ministry. It is absolutely necessary that we test to confirm that somebody is being sent or speaking on behalf of the Lord or is speaking on behalf of somebody else or something else. The Pharisees and others would have absolutely been called to verify that Jesus was the Messiah. There is no problem with that. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 would even read and says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now is in the world already. So <clears throat> the attempt to verify who Jesus is isn't wrong in and of itself, but the lengths at which they would go to try to negate the obvious at this point is where the Pharisees have fallen into sin. These Pharisees were far past testing at this point. They and we 
should have a question loaded in our minds as we begin to evaluate the validity of ministers and ministries. How far into testing might we have to admit that pride has clouded our vision? As we have seen through the book of Matthew that these Pharisees, while they should have been looking for to proclaim the Messiah's arrival, were completely bent to secure their own followers. These men had continual interactions with Jesus and have refused to affirm any aspect of his ministry. You would notice here that something has just been accomplished that they have never been able to do, nor anybody else has ever been able to do. They not only were not able to acknowledge the fact that the miracle did happen, but they would try to accuse Jesus of being used by the enemy. A similar and modern example might be the person who claims that Christianity has no cultural value. What do I mean by that? Is there are some who would be so bent against the church and so bent about against Christianity and so bent against God that they are completely unable to acknowledge what God has in fact done in the world through the church. How many of you have heard in today's world that the church brings no inherent value to the culture that we live in today? I've heard that. We've got like three people. All right, that's it. Okay, I've got a couple more. There's a few more. While that's certainly opinion, it is an, certainly an opinion, it is absolutely an emotionally driven one. It completely ignores the facts of all of history, not church history, just all of history. While <clears throat> I wouldn't promote this man's teachings in any aspect, the atheist Tom Holland would write this. I'm going to have to pull my notes up a little closer because that font is super small says, simply, the ancients were cruel and their values utterly foreign. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for the physical pleasure for those with power. Infanticide was common. The poor and the weak had no rights. So how did we get here from there? Christianity did it. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibit all forms of rape. Christianity confined sexuality within monogamy. And he would even note that it's ironic that these are the tenets by which they are despised for. Christianity elevated women in short. In short, it utterly transformed the world. God has used the church to abolish slavery. God has used the church to bring worth back to every man and woman. God has used the church to bring healing. And if you go out and around, most of the hospitals that, are, that have a name attached to them were founded by the church. And so here, while we see that being practiced today, the Pharisees are doing something very similar, is that they had ideologies and they had emotions automatically attached to how they wanted things to go and have found themselves completely unable to be submitted to truth and reality. Whenever you hear a brother or sister today, oh, they wouldn't be brothers and sisters today, rail against the church, just remember the truth is that God has been faithful in it. But then, <clears throat> if it is irrational, what, ki- what causes this kind of irrational response? And I believe this is good that we consider for a moment. A lot of times, our reactions are revelations of the emotions we've already brought to a situation. 
What does that mean? A lot of times when we go into a contentious conversation, and what's crazy is I think most of us have experienced this, is I typically know, especially if I need to address something, whether I'm walking into a pleasant conversation or I'm going to walk into a conversation I'd rather not have today. How many of you have ever had that experience? You're going into one, you're like, this is going to be the worst, right? We're going to have to address some issues. But to successfully walk out of that kind of situation, I have to check my emotions at the door to ensure that I have the ability to listen and to learn. If I tote my anxiety into the meeting or I tote my presupposed or even assumed ideas into it, I might find it impossible to make my way through it. Healthy education and evaluation requires emotionless as much as is possible, that's not always possible, but as much as we can, consumption and acknowledgement. We have to be willing to put ourselves to the side and see what is true for us to be able to learn and for us to be able to see. We see the Pharisees here already bent on getting rid of Jesus because they're trying to hold on to something that isn't theirs but it's even more clear that they aren't, it's even more clear of their pride is, notice this, they're not responding to the miracle, they're responding to the question that the people are beginning to ask, is this the Messiah? You guys had lots of jobs, but one of your most important ones was to identify who Jesus is, and now the people around you are beginning to see the truth, And they're beginning to ask the question you should have been asking a long time ago, but because you're so stuck, whether you want to admit it or not, you're not moving forward. The Pharisees in their pride had found themselves completely unable to see God before them. And so brothers and sisters, we even have to ask ourselves, maybe there's somebody here in this room who, who doesn't know the Lord, who doesn't know Jesus, and you're looking for, for evidence to be able to put your faith and trust in him, is you have to ask yourself this question, at what point is sufficient evidence made? If you're going to constantly ask for something that God has already done for you, then what is it that you're really looking for? These Pharisees had abundant evidence They got to see Jesus be baptized. They got to see the Father affirm who Jesus was. They get to see him raise people from the dead. They get to see him exercise those who nobody could exercise, but still they would sit here and say, nope, he's working on the team of Satan. A lot of us chuckle when we hear something like that, but that's the reality of the situation is there are some people who are so bent on making sure that they are the foremost authority in their lives that they will never, even in the face of evidence, bow to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there are even some of us who are walking with the Lord right now who knows that God is trying to require something of us. And we know what the answer is, but how many times have you ever heard this phrase, I'm I'm gonna pray on that? Or, no, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray about it for a little bit before I, before I make that decision. No, you know full well what God's asking you to do. You know. 
But it's you who you worship and not God who you're worshiping when you're unwilling to relent and let go of the sin God is trying to remove from you. Not because he despises you, but because he wants you to experience the spiritual freedom he created you for. But Jesus says he is always gracious. I can confidently say in my flesh, if these guys had come at me the way that they're coming at Jesus, my response might not have been so kind. But Jesus provides such a rational response to an irrational idea. So the miracle's been performed. The people are beginning to see who Jesus is. The Pharisees would say, no, not even for a second. He's working on behalf of Satan. Jesus would respond this way. Look at verse 25 with me. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so for those of you that are taking notes here, is I want you to pay attention to the fact that Jesus is speaking in terms of kingdoms here. While there is a superior and more true and wholly authoritative kingdom, it does not mean that Satan is not trying to establish one himself. Jesus is speaking that there are two that are functioning, but there is only one that we can be submitted to. Now, as we find in the word that Satan is effectively wasting his time, but he is still trying as he wants to see man's demise. This is how Jesus is speaking now. He responds to them this way. And actually, first, I want you guys to note, knowing their thoughts. This is an example of the word of knowledge. Now, Jesus is God, and so he doesn't necessarily need the word of knowledge as he already knows everything. But for any of you who are interested in what the word of knowledge is or what it looks like, This is an example of how it is used and what it functions like, is it's a God-given ability to understand something that you should not know. But here, he responds with this first explanation, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan casting out his own only cripples his own kingdom. The question or accusation of Where Jesus is serving is pretty fantastic in its accusation in and of itself. But Jesus would say, essentially, that your accusation doesn't make any sense because if Satan is trying to establish a kingdom, why would Satan say, because what you're saying is that Satan is effectively tearing his own kingdom down. And we know that if any kingdom is to be built up, it must be in support of itself. Jesus is saying this doesn't make any sense at all. Nobody would go and effectively send people out to destroy their own efforts. He's saying this doesn't make any sense. But here, at the end, he says, not at the end, but at the end of this particular response, he 
He says, how then do your sons cast out demons? Now remember something. This was known to be an impossible miracle. You can't forget that. So then if you remember that, then that makes this an odd question. If it's impossible and nobody's ever been able to do it, then why is Jesus saying, how then do your sons cast out demons? Well, it's kind of a, I think there, if there was any sense of humor in the way Jesus would spoke, it's right here because he's saying, he's like, all right, well, if I'm removing demons from people, then why don't you explain how you're removing demons from people? If I'm working on behalf of Satan, then who are you working on behalf of because you're clearly not getting anything done? If you're working on behalf of God, how come God's blessing isn't in your hands is what he's saying here. And so he's saying, while you can accuse me of working for the enemy, he's saying, evaluate your own work because your hands are not bearing fruit. And your fruitless ministry is going to be your judge is what this is saying here. It took me a little bit to wrap my head around that, but it was... Jesus is saying, accuse all you want, but this man has been set free. Evaluate your work and see whether somebody is still left in bondage or not. And I think that that is a really important question we ask ourselves. As we are trying to be ministers of the gospel, how are people walking away? Are they still bound in sin? Are they encouraged in the word? Are we encouraging people to continue to exist the way they have always, or are we encouraging people to live a life surrendered to the Lord? Jesus is doing a work that is absolutely glorifying God and revealing God's power in real time. Notice that. Is Jesus, and this is why I said, this particular miracle reveals Jesus' authority. No man has been able to replicate this kind of work, this is by Christ and Christ alone. This is an irrefutable fact. And here, because again, they're trying to hold on to their own work, unable to acknowledge what God is really doing. But then he goes on and talks about the strong man's house. Verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The strong man, speaking about the opposition. The threat must be subdued even for a moment in order to escape with the desired goods intact. And I think contextually as we're looking at this, is we can all, it's a, a safe assumption to say that what God's caring about here is people as Jesus has just bound the work of the strong man in this particular man's life and set him free, Jesus did the more miraculous work and Jesus has identified himself as not the strong man, but the strongest man, amen? I think when we come across a section of scripture like this, it should help us remember and help us be encouraged by the section of scripture that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus is supreme, this was a kind of oppression that we in our own wisdom and in our own strength and in our own attempts could not overcome. But when Jesus became involved, it was easily conquered. Brothers and sisters, a lot of times when we talk about the work of the enemy, we do call him a strong man, but we treat 
the enemy like it is the strongest man. Biblically, that is not true. We have to know as we are called to go out and move in faith that the strongest is working on our behalf. When scripture says that he is a way maker, there is nobody who stands in his way who can stop him from being just that. The pathway has been made clear because God is on our side. Jesus has subdued the work of the enemy and to set this captive free. And we see that Jesus is greater than the strongman. Church, be encouraged by that. You're going to come up to moments in life, and let's acknowledge this for a minute because what's happening here is what's going to happen with us. The Pharisees and those absolutely came against the strongman. If you're going to walk after Jesus and you're going to be a disciple and you're going to walk in obedience, you're absolutely going to come up against the enemy. You're going to come up against things that are absolutely beyond you in your flesh. That's undeniable. The enemy is trying to build some kind of kingdom and out of his hate for the Lord wants to see God's creation that he loves utterly destroyed. And so if that's true, don't think for a moment the enemy's going to let your life and your ministry be easy. It's going to happen. Man, that was a fast mute. Whoever's hands that were, you got quick hands. Strong man didn't get you today. I don't know who you are. But brothers and sisters, that's why we're called to be people of prayer so that we can employ the strongest man against the one who we cannot overcome. And brothers and sisters, don't think too highly of yourself. Is there are times when you have been walking successfully in ministry that you come against a strong man and you think that you got this licked? Pause. Take a break, sit down, and pray before somebody else makes you sit down. It is better to humble yourself than to be humbled. Saying that from a place of experience. Christian, be slow. Have a life full of prayer so that the strong man would have no strength against the God who's working on your behalf. Amen? And then he goes on to say, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, as we're talking about kingdoms here, Jesus draws the definitive line and remember, <clears throat> we're talking about spiritual kingdoms. Don't forget the context of the conversation. There are some, I'm sure, you've heard me say this a million times, who would say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, this is absolutely some kind of authoritative claim as Jesus has just expressed his clear spiritual authority over something that they could not and now says to the Pharisees, whoever is, sorry, let me read it again because I don't want to misphrase this here. Where did it go? It's gone. Whoever is not with me is against me. To the Pharisees, to those who would question it, you have to be on my side. Jesus is telling the religious leaders at that time, if you want to be on the right side, you have to be on mine. I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. This is a definitive statement and claim of who Christ is. Whoever is not for me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you're not on Christ's side and doing the work of Christ and of his ministry and of his love, then you are trying to effectively break up his kingdom. Jesus is not allowing somebody to sit in a lukewarm state here in this verse. He's saying, if you're not intentionally being a disciple of mine, then you are being used by the enemy to break up the work that God is doing. Brothers and sisters, there is no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. There isn't. We're either serving the Lord or we are not serving the Lord. We are either serving the Lord or we are serving the enemy. That doesn't mean that we don't backslide sometimes and it doesn't mean that we don't need to ask for forgiveness and grace. But the person who has claimed Christ and never intentionally taking the step in the direction of bearing their cross, I will go out and say, is not one. We are saved by faith and faith alone, but our faith is made evident by the man that we walk with. Are we bearing Jesus' light yoke today? Are we serving his kingdom or are we serving the enemy's kingdom? And if you're sitting here and you're hearing that today and you're like, I have no idea whose kingdom I'm serving. The unfortunate answer is this, you're not serving God's. There is no sideline participation here. Again, there are seasons, there are moments when somebody needs rest or somebody needs to sit and pray. There are times when somebody needs to mourn and there are times when somebody needs to weep and there are times when somebody has just missed the mark. We're not talking about that. We're talking about an intentional life lived in a specific direction. And so if you're here and you're like, well, I haven't done anything for a couple months. I'm not talking about months. We're talking about the intentionality of your life as a whole. Have you lived for the Lord? Have you served him? Have you participated and taken part in his kingdom? What kingdom does our home pay tribute or homage to? This word tribute is something given or contributed as due or deserved, especially a gift showing respect, gratitude, or affection. If Jesus' comment is true, then our participation or lack of participation is paying tribute to somebody. Your home is honoring a kingdom whether we want to acknowledge it or not. The life we live is paying tribute to somebody and the life we live is teaching those who are looking up to us whose kingdom is worth contributing to. Who are we teaching those looking up to us whose kingdom is more valuable? This comment makes us, it forces us to ask the question of our allegiance to the Lord. Who do we really serve? I think one of the 
the more atrocious things that we've seen over these past few weeks as conflict has arose in, in Israel is the amount of supposed Christians and the amount of churches and the amount of areas of life that we've seen be wholly unwilling to pray for the benefit of Israel. I don't know if you've considered how ungodly that actually is. The Christian is not called to be a sympathizer of sinners. The Christian is called to be a proclaimer of the good news. Yeah, I'm sure Israel has done things wrong. Just as your leadership in the church has done things wrong. But that doesn't mean that we're called just because somebody did something wrong to stop doing what God's called us to do. Can we bear with me for just a second as I make this point? It is growing in our culture today that everybody thinks that they're permitted to jump ship on God's commandments because somebody has set a bad example one time. If you're coming to church and you are able to leave church because of the behavior of a person, it was never God that you were coming to worship in the first place. Jesus makes it abundantly clear through his word that men are going to fail over and over and over again, but God is infinitely more faithful than all of them. Peter. Peter was a failure of sorts, to say the least. The disciples all missed the call. They had to be reminded to go where Jesus sent them because they forgot Jesus was going to rise from the dead. This was a faithless bunch until Jesus actually rose and he affirmed that he is good. They were moping in the upper room and didn't go where Jesus told them to go because they didn't believe. Peter, as his Savior was being crucified, would deny him three times. And who did he deny him to? Consider this for a minute. It wasn't some bouncer or some massive Roman soldier. It was a little girl. Look, what's that little girl going to do to you? Nope, I don't know him. Never met him in my life. And Peter's considered one of the foremost leaders of the church. Consider if we were allowed and permitted to abandon God's commands on the misbehavior of men, Peter's example alone would make it so that we wouldn't have to gather at all. But we come to the place of worship because of how good God is, not because of how good man is. It's okay for us to acknowledge men suck sometimes. I'm going to fail. We can't prioritize the wrong things. If we're going to look at the world and try to figure out all of the things that anybody's ever done wrong so that we would be permitted to walk in disobedience to God's word, then you will end up sitting on your hands, on your couch, not doing anything. I know I brought up Israel possibly doing something wrong. That's not a new thought or idea. Open the Old Testament for two minutes. As unfaithful as that group of people were, God was still infinitely faithful to them. 
they would forget time and time again that the Lord would say, as long as you love me and abide with me, then blessing will flow from me. But guess what they didn't do? They didn't love him or abide with him. And then they had to deal with God's judgment. Man's misbehavior, man's falling short, man's sin does not delegitimize God's goodness. It does not make God's word untrue. It doesn't make his promises fail. In fact, if anything, it just proves that God is more gracious than we understand. Because if we brought to the table our failings today, we would have to admit that God is quite gracious to have allowed us to have another day here, amen? That's just this room. Don't fall victim to the ideas that are growing in our culture that because I can come up with a reason why somebody has fallen short, that I don't have to obey God's commands. No. Israel are God's chosen people, period. We have been grafted into that family because of the accomplished and perfect work on the cross, amen? The church is not superior to Israel, The church is a gift, and God loves his church, which is inclusive of Israel or vice versa, depending on how you want to say it. It's been troubling to see our response to this particular situation, not ours, but many people's response, to abandon who we should be faithful to you guys understand that spiritually to abandon Israel is the same as you abandoning the church? Spiritually. We're not permitted to do that. We can't not love who God loves and God loves the people of Israel so much. And God loves us and allowed us to be part of that. Amen? Sorry for that tangent. I've been genuinely surprised by that over this past couple weeks. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not love who God loves is against God. And then he goes on in 31 through 32. Therefore, and whenever you see a therefore, know that this is the concluding thought. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come, therefore and forever. This isn't a momentary phrase. And speaking of God's grace, I think it's, I don't know how many of you have ever experienced this. God's grace is so abundant. Every time I get into the word, I find it's a little bit deeper than what I understood last time. We're not talking about somebody who's cursed God for a moment or cursed God for a phrase. We're talking about individuals who have purposefully rejected God with their entire life, who have been whole 
wholeheartedly opposed to him. God's abundant grace is on full display here. Each passing day is opportunity to be saved. And there is rarely a day before death that man would find himself eternally condemned. But there are a great many days before our flesh fails that a man would find himself eternally redeemed. God gives a man his entire life an opportunity to be saved. He allows us to sin, he allows us to fall, and he keeps reaching out to us. In his graciousness, he keeps extending a loving hand that we would be saved over and over and over and over again. And it isn't a single one of those moments that God says, fine, you're done. A heart can be hardened over time, but God is abundantly gracious over that extended amount of time. There isn't a sentence that can be uttered before you pass away that would say that you're bound for hell no matter what. Consider Saul, who we know as Paul. Saul hated Christ, and Saul hated all of us who would have followed him. He was hell-bent on eradicating Christianity from the world. He was on his way to go murder people when Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. But I would say while God allows a man to walk in that for a long time, he gives them to his final day. He's gracious in that. There's not one sentence that can save a man. There is one, or there's not one sentence that can condemn a man. There is one sentence that can actually save him. God is slow to judgment but he is quick to saving. Thank God. Do we realize that about our God? Very slow and very gracious, but he is quick when it comes to salvation. But let's not be so foolish to think that we have an abundant or an eternal amount of time. It's a kind of Russian roulette spiritually that we play to think that I can just get saved tomorrow. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not. In terms of speaking about what we've been speaking about all morning when it comes to the, the chaos overseas right now, <clears throat> I'm sure some of you have seen that young German lady who was just attending a concert and her life was over before she even realized it. disrobed and carried and spit on through the streets. She was sure of tomorrow, but tomorrow was not there. It's a humbling thought. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're just not. And if Jesus is standing before us in his word, as he stood before the Pharisees, are we hardening our hearts or are we willing to put our faith and trust in him? The issue of time should make us diligent to use it well, to not be so foolish as to let our lusts remove us from eternal safety. If 
if you're in here and you're asking God to make it clear that he is God, he's done that sufficiently already. If you're asking God before you would put your faith and trust in him to prove that he loves you, I think we spoke about this a couple Sundays or Wednesdays ago. I'm not sure how somebody can make it more clear that they love you than to sacrifice their one and only son for you. In fact, I think it's pretty incredible sometimes that we, when we look at the work of the cross, we would think that God needs to prove himself a little bit more. Can you imagine being the father and hearing somebody say, I need you to prove that you love me when I laid my son down for you? I can't think of a mother or father in this room who would be okay at that notion. But he's still gracious to provide you time. Jesus loves you so much. There's nobody who can do the work that Jesus can do. You might be in here today full of anxiety, depression. You've lost hope. You've lost whatever. You've sought the counsel of man. You've sought the wisdom of man. You've done whatever you can, and there is no answer there. Well, I think Jesus shows us here that he can very well do what no man has ever been able to do. And if he was able to heal this individual, he can do well with you as well. An encouragement for those of us who have been walking with the Lord for some time. There are some of us who have been walking with the Lord for a long time and we've just fallen to the side. We've fallen to the wayside. We've, gone, we've become consumed with the things of this world. I hear and see lots of little ones in the room today and I hear them in the other rooms. The thoughts and hopes of our kids futures can totally distract us from what God has us here doing right now. It's amazing in our culture how many parents won't have served the Lord for 20 plus years because they've made their child an idol. And then they wonder why their child is crazy because they've been worshipped for 20 years. Parents, be cautious not to make your child an idol. Nobody's designed to be worshipped. It will corrupt the soul to think that they are the center of anybody's universe. This 10 verses whatever the strong man is in your life today, you have to know that in the face of Christ, it is not the strongest. Jesus is the strongest. Have faith and know that if Jesus is the strongest, he can do well with your life today. Amen? So our closing question. Are we moving towards a place of refusal or faith? Careful not to be the Pharisee in this story. Careful they looked at the work of Christ. They looked at the person of Jesus. They looked at the word of God. And because they desired the things of this world more than they desired him, they missed out on peace. They missed out on salvation. 
Let's put our faith and trust in Jesus today.